We are the sacred collective. All are respected. All are heard. All are welcomed. Join us. Welcome, everyone, to the Sacred Collective Podcast. We have a special guest today, uh, Lucas Wilson, and we were just talking before uh, before we got on and started recording, just kind of how we kind of came across each other's um, paths, I guess. And I will say that Instagram, social media is a cool thing. I think, Lucas, you, um, you, you had said that um, it was probably like a site that we both are a person or a group that we both follow and then you're a fan of the podcast so we thank you very much and you reached out and some of the stuff you said that you were on like some of the podcasts i was like hey i know that podcast or i've listened to it so i'm after a couple of weeks of trying to finagle of of what day and time works we're here together and thank you for helping me set up my zoom because uh you know, I can't do it on my own, apparently. So, Lucas, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very glad to be here. So, yeah, let's just get into it. So, just tell our listeners who you are, like uh, like where you're from, where you live, and kind of just your background as much as you feel like saying. Yeah, so my name is Luke Wilson. I am from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where I currently live. I'm back in my hometown. Uh, after a number of years being uh, in the States, uh, like I said, born and raised here. I went to you know elementary, middle, and high school here. Uh, and it was in high school that I became an evangelical. I was the co- sort of convert that was in some ways a zealot for Jesus, and I was on fire for Christ. And so I decided that when I was in high school, and it was kind of ironic being the Christian kid at an art school, I went to a performing arts and visual arts and, you know, all the arts uh, sort of high school, I decided that I was going to go uh, to Liberty University, the world's largest evangelical school in a lot of ways, uh, very different from the education I was receiving at my Toronto public school. Uh, But I decided that I was going to go down uh, and, and study at Liberty. So I first, before uh, um, making that decision, I decided I was going to go uh, on these different bus trips down to down to Lynchburg and to check out the Liberty's campus. And I, my uncle actually was the the first one to to prod me to go to Liberty or to come and visit Liberty. But I said at the time because I was planning on staying in Canada uh, in high school before I again made the decision that I wanted to study Liberty. But I was very much dead set. Uh, I was I was uh, committed to staying in Canada. I was raised on a very strict diet of anti-American <laughs> sentiment uh, because of my dad. But uh, my uncle at a certain point said, hey, Luke, you should come down to Liberty. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to go to Virginia. <laughs> that sounds all that appealing. But he said, uh, he's like, no, 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 it's a free trip. Come on down. We'll ha- you'll have fun. And, and, and you get to see this, this cool Christian campus. And I was like, okay. So I went down and I visited. And it was because of that visit that I, again, made the decision I wanted to go to Liberty. And uh, it was on that visit that I, I saw in chapel, what they call convocation at Liberty. I saw that they had, they had these different announcements that were rotating on a screen. And one of the announcements was for uh, men struggling, quote unquote, with same sex attraction. And I, being a gay kid, <laughs> very much was, was, you know, terrified of my sexuality. I was very much, uh, did not 
want to be gay or should may, should I say more accurately was told I didn't want to be gay. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that when I saw that, that ad, I was like, well, oh my goodness, like, you know, I should, I should check out more uh, about who this person is who's offering this, these, you know, this program of conversion therapy. So I went, you know, back to uh, after, after chapel, I, I said to my, my buddy who was, I was staying with when I was there, um, uh, who I met, I guess, while on that trip, I said, yo, so uh, what's up with that, uh, that, that group for guys struggling with same-sex attraction? Trying to make a joke out of right, it, right? right. And he told me a little more about it. And that was the seed that was planted where I eventually, when I was making the decision, do I go to the States? Do I go stay in Canada? Uh, the, I was making a little bit of a check, or I made this little checklist, you know, check for going on an adventure to Virginia, check for, uh, you know, saving money and staying in Toronto, even though it actually turned out that I was saving money by going to Liberty. Um, cause it was less expensive. Uh, so I was making these little, this little check bark, uh, this little tally system. And the only thing I gave two check marks or two tallies for was the fact that they had a conversion therapy program there. Mm. And looking back, obviously that tells me now that this was something that was very important to me. This was something that I really, really, uh, wanted, or again, more accurately was told I really, really wanted. Um, and I eventually decided to go to Liberty. And in, in part, I was able to do that because I received a scholarship to go. But like I say now, um, you, you don't, you can't really receive a scholarship unless what you're doing at that school is scholarship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't think I can define my time at Liberty, uh, in, in any way, uh, academically. So nonetheless, I went down, uh, to Liberty and I was there for all four years. I did my undergrad in English and all four years I was there, I was in conversion therapy and I wasn't necessarily in there every single week. There were weeks and, you know, times where I was, you know, uh, doing whatever else or busy or whatnot. Uh, but by and large, uh, I was there religiously uh, <laughs> and was committed to becoming straight. And of course, uh, you know, as everyone listening probably already knows, you, you can't change your sexuality. It doesn't really work like that. Um, but I gave it the good old college try. I did my best and, uh, was very unsuccessful. Uh, tried to date a few gals who I don't think they wanted to date me as much as I wanted to date them by the end of those <laughs> dates, you know. Um, but I tried and uh, eventually uh, gave up. But it wasn't uh, right away when I was at Liberty. It wasn't even immediately right after Liberty that I gave up on trying to become straight. It was actually, uh, it was a process of of coming to terms with my sexuality as it related to my faith and my faith at this point is very, very different. But um, when I was first, uh, when I first left Liberty, it was still, I was, you know, I had the idea that I was going to go and change the world for Jesus. And mm-hmm. everyone I met was going to, you know, come to know Christ. And that didn't work out the way that I thought it did. <laughs> because a lot of people I was hanging out with afterwards weren't interested in Jesus. Surprise, surprise. But uh, I went on and I did my master's in English at McMaster University. And then I went back to the States. I went to Vanderbilt University for my master's in theological studies. Uh, then I taught for a year at a local liberal arts college, a Christian school, Lipscomb University in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. And then I started my PhD at Florida Atlantic University down in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. But I and Florida were not a good match. So I fast-tracked my PhD to get the heck out of Florida. Uh, and I moved back up to Toronto. And I've been teaching at University of Toronto and Seneca College since 2019 while finishing my PhD, which will be, fingers crossed, complete in May of next year. Wow, that's that's quite quite a lot, um, quite a story. And congratulations early um, on on that. I know I didn't do a PhD, but I know doctoral work is a beast. 
Uh, so kudos for doing that. Cause there's a lot of people who do PhDs or other doctorates and they do ABD all but dissertation and your dissertation is a beast. It's a bear. Um, yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for just that little bit of that background and bio. Um, let's just kind of dig in a little bit to, to Liberty. Most people who listen are more, if they're Christian, they're progressive on the progressive end. Some might be evangelical, but for those Liberty is like you said, Lucas, that, um, it's the biggest evangelical college in America. It's also started by Jerry Falwell Sr. and other people know um, his, I will say, his ass hat of a son, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, <laughs> uh, was the one who who was there, kind of taking over. Not not much anymore. He got kicked out, which we could get into that. But um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the evangelical world myself. I grew up in the Assemblies of God. And so I went to a Pentecostal Bible college here um, in Minneapolis, where I'm from, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, not too far from Canada, just about a good eight-hour drive north, even though I've never been to Canada. Um, Come on up. Yeah, I well, I just don't know a lot of people from Canada. And when you could go over the Minnesota border, there's really nothing until the biggest, closest city is Thunder Bay. But then <laughs> we're actually closer to Winnipeg, I guess, than Toronto's quite quite far east of us. Um, but yeah, that would be cool. I've always wanted to go up to Toronto. Um, but anyway, so I understand the evangelical school, college. I know for me, my, um, my education didn't really feel like an education. It felt like a Bible camp or, you know, that lasted four years. Um, but yeah, maybe just tell us a little bit real quick about your time at Liberty of, of, you know, like like you said, the gay conversion therapies programs and stuff that they had. Because I mean, that's just let's be honest, gay conversion therapy is outright horrible and should it be illegal everywhere. But kind of just maybe jump down through there because I mean, I'm just shocked that even in evangelical school, yes, they can have their own theology and stuff like that. Why they would even have something like that um, at a school and how hurtful and toxic that is. Yeah. Um, first of all, I should say, if in fact you were to cross that Minnesota border and go to Thunder Bay or Manitoba, um, do yourself a favor and don't. <laughs> Neither spot are very cool. But if you do come to Toronto, yes, uh, you now have a, a friend in Toronto to, to come go. visit. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so uh, Liberty, yeah. So Liberty, I remember one time I read an article by Brandon Ambrosino. Brandon Ambrosino was one of the first openly gay uh men who went to Liberty. He, he never actually finished there, but he wrote a number of articles about Liberty and he's actually done some really good investigative journalism, uh, particularly with Politico as of recent, but one of his early articles, it's called like gay at God's school or like gay at Jerry's school or something like that. Um, and in that piece he talks about, he's like, Liberty's not exactly what you think it would be. And I'm here to say, no, it's precisely <laughs> what you think it would be. Um, Liberty is a place where anti-intellectualism reigns supreme, uh, where they operate on a binary understanding of the world. It's either or, right, wrong, good, evil, of God, of the enemy. Uh, it's, it's, such a, it's a place that um, intellectual curiosity is discouraged and stymied. Uh, it's a place where um, uh, folks follow a number of cultural and religious scripts 
mostly to do with gender, you know, gendered scripts. So mm-hmm. women have a very particular way of, of being, and if they don't, or they have a prescribed way of being, and if they don't follow that sort of uh, script, then uh, there are consequences for that social and also institutional consequences. Same with men. Um, there's a very particular narrow sexual ethic. Um, there's a very particular narrow way of being in general, mm-hmm. right? That there are a number of rules from dress code to curfew to uh, ways that uh, folks from the opposite gender are to interact, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a place that finds and punishes students if they are not in line with the Liberty Way. The Liberty Way is their student code of conduct, and it's strict. It's precisely, again, what you think it would be. Um, and it's it's a place where you don't have the standard or typical undergrad experience. And I think for some people, that's what they want, right? Like mm-hmm. they want that safe, quote-unquote, Christian atmosphere, but whether or not Liberty is all that quote unquote Chris or all that Christian is a, <laughs> a question in of itself. Right. Um, but it's a place that um, really does not promote ex- exploration or Liberty as the name might suggest. Um, it's a place that really pushes students to follow a very prescribed specific narrow way of being. Um, they used to call it when I was there, they said it was peer pressure in the right direction, and, which is a terrifying <laughs> phrase. Yes, yes, and of course, it's not, yeah, it's not even peer pressure, right? It's institutional pressure passed down to RAs who are forced to fine and punish uh, students or their peers, mm-hmm. right? So it's this very much this institution that tries to mask itself as just this bastion of Christian, you know, young adulthood, when in fact, it's this place that controls, monitors, and uh, what's the word? monitors and controls their students and how they act. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I became a Christian in grade nine. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, um, but I became super religious in grade nine. Uh, and so when I got to Liberty, I was like, oh, I'm on board with everything. I thought everything that was Christian was cool. And I think it was mostly because it was so foreign in a literal and figurative sense in Canada, because there aren't very many Christians in comparison to the States. In the States, there's just a larger evangelical population than there is in Canada. And I was one of very few Christians in my high school and my youth group was quite small. And so being in this place with all these Christians, all these young Christians, uh, and, and, and being in a place where everyone seemed to be on the same page at the time was so appealing. Um, because again, I loved the idea of homogeneity. I loved the idea of everyone being a part of something that was greater than ourselves, but also something that allowed us to thrive, or at least what I thought at the time was thriving. Looking back, it was like incredibly oppressive and it was incredibly, uh, you know, uh, manipulative how the school operated. But at the time I thought it was great. And I think that Liberty is very strategic in how they, come across to their students and how they control their students. Because if in fact students thought they were being controlled, if in fact students thought they were being monitored or whatever, of course they wouldn't like it. Of course they wouldn't want to do that. But Liberty has this way of being that makes it seem as if, you know, they're the, they're just uh, an institution where that allows or or, or fosters this, this sort of ethos when in fact it's very controlled. It's very um, designed how Mm -hmm. they, again, you know, control their students. And so, I was there from 2008 until 2012. This was before Jerry Jr., who you referenced, the, the, uh, to use your language, an asshat. And I think that's an apt uh, academic way of putting it. Um, I think that the way that Jerry became 
was really after I had left. And I think that also lines up with the the timeline. If anyone has been following the debacle that is Liberty mm-hmm. University over the past decade, um, the the what has, who, who has become known as the pool boy, his name's uh, Giancarlo Granda. Um, this was around the time that they met Giancarlo Granda or just, just before. Um, and then, of course, you know, 2013, we see Trump at Liberty. And then after that, we see Trump again. And then we see Trump again. And then we see Mike Pence. And we see all these other folks uh, showing up to Liberty and, and speaking who are part of the, you know, the conservative uh, sort of constituency within the states. So I, though, when I was there from, for the four years, uh, was very much drinking the Kool-Aid. I was very much on board with everything, um, which is in part why, of course, I went, or in large part, why I went to conversion therapy. Um, what happened was there was, uh, on, on our dorms, we had RAs, then under them, we had spiritual life directors, and under them, we had prayer leaders, and then there were the rest of us, plebeians, underneath all those spiritual folks. But one of my spiritual life directors one day, uh, he, <laughs> he made a move on me, and I had never really like done anything with anyone uh, yeah, I was like, I had never really gone on a date or anything like that. And mm-hmm. so when he makes this move or starts flirting with me, I'm thinking to myself, is, is this what, am I reading the room correctly? Is this right, like right. what's happening? And it's, you know, cause you're, it's like all of a sudden going into outer space for the first time and trying to like navigate outer space. This is something that's so foreign and different, right? For a lot of queer kids, we don't have those experiences of like flirting and you know uh teasing the people we're into or anything like that because we're so terrified that we're gonna get caught we don't do it so when this for the first time someone you know starts uh really uh, approaching me in my social circle i didn't really know what was going on um but he says to me he's like hey we should watch a movie this friday i said okay let's watch a movie this friday again hoping that this was a, you know, an advance, not knowing, but hoping. And I should say before going down, even though conversion therapy was front and center and why I decided to go there, my big plan was that I was going to go to Liberty and I was going to date Christian guys. And at the very end, you know, switch teams, go to conversion therapy, find a wife, marry her and off I'd leave. Because my thing was before that, I didn't want to be a bad Christian witness to any of the folks in my high school. And I thought if I were to come out as gay or for anyone to know that I was gay, that would ruin my Christian witness and I wouldn't be able to uh, be as effective in evangelizing. <laughs> and so I never came out in high school. I never told anyone in high school. And I never dated or you know did anything in high school. So when I got to Liberty, I was like, well, this is a safe place. Everyone's Christian. So I might as well like go and have my fun. And then at the end of it, again, find a gal and get married, which of course is like so objectifying to women, right? Like mm-hmm. I'll find a gal, any gal will do like, <laughs> it's like it doesn't matter who, but it just, as long as she was a woman. Um, but that was my plan. But that plan was, uh, was foiled because of what happened with my spiritual life director. So he and I, we had this like, really bizarre romantic encounter <laughs> and I won't go into details, spare you that, but it was really, really weird. And afterwards I said to him, I was like, Hey, um, we need to talk. And he's like, there's nothing to talk about. And when this is your first, you know, romantic encounter, you're like, what in the world? Like you get almost feel like you're excommunicated, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. nothing to speak about. So I freaked out and I was like, oh, like I need to talk about this. I don't know who to talk about this with. And I'm like this, whenever I get upset or, you know, anything's going on in my life, I have to talk, talk, talk to someone because I'm a chatty boy. And so I, instead of chatting to anyone, because I was too, again, I wasn't about to tell my friends and lose my friends that I had made because of their, I was gay. And of course, being gay at Liberty is not all that cool. Um, so I was like, who do I talk to? So I, instead, I would just cry in the parking lot and call my mom afterwards and not tell her anything. But again, just to have like that familiar, comforting voice. So 
eventually I had a friend of mine. He used to always come to my work with me. My work, I was able to have people come and like sit in my, my workspace. Mm. And unless the phone rang, I didn't, I, I could do whatever I wanted. So we would, I would bring like friends and we'd do work at my work. So we're sitting there, we're, uh, we're chatting and he knew something was wrong. He knew that on my dorm, that there was an issue between me and my spiritual life director. So I said, so he said to me, he's like, what's going on? I said, well, I can't really tell you um, because uh, I don't really want to get into the details. Meanwhile, I was dying to get into the details, but I said, but you know what I can do? I can, I can read you a poem I wrote about it. <laughs> so I wrote this poem. Uh, it was called, and it's so cringy. It was called, you ever notice how cold it gets in the fall? <laughs> <laughs> and I read up this poem thinking that I'm being covert. I think that I'm like not giving away, you know, what happened uh, in explicit uh, words. And afterwards he's looking at me and this, this is my, my buddy. And whenever we talked about anything sort of sexual or whatever, he, he'd get these like quivering, like weird lips. Like they like, Ooh, they started like, like my grandmother's lips. Whenever she would talk, she had these quivering lips. <laughs> and so he says to me, he's like, uh, uh, I think I know what you're talking about through your poem. And I'm like, oh gosh, like, no, no, like, I don't want him to know. Again, I wanted him to know, but I was terrified right. that, you know, he was straight. And I said, well, what do you think it is? He said, well, I don't want to tell you because I don't want to be wrong and then be embarrassed. I said, why would you be embarrassed by guessing? And he said, well, it's just, I don't know. I, I think I struggle with the same thing. And the moment he said, I struggle with the same thing was the, sort of that dog whistle, like, hey, I'm gay. Because of course, in Christianese, what you say is I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. Right. And so I was like, wait a second, you know, uh, maybe we are talking about the same thing. And then it was this kind of like awkward fumbling back and forth. And eventually he says, and we're both like, uh, I struggle with same sex. I struggle with same sex attraction. That's how, and then we started talking about it. Um, he and I talked about it that night and he asked me, he said, hey, Luke, have you ever been attracted to a woman? And I, at the time was very self-deluded and I said, yeah, I'm bisexual. Newsflash, I'm not. But I was, you know, I, I convinced myself I was bi. I said, you know, have you ever been attracted to a woman? He said, no, never. And he is now married to a woman and he has, uh, he has a, a kid. And wow. so the thing about him and the thing about a number of the guys who I met at Liberty who were gay, a lot of them are married. A lot of them are married to women. Uh, and a lot of them now have children, which of course is implicating even more people into the situation mm-hmm. uh, or the situ- these situations. And I think what's wild is that their their wives actually know about them being gay because uh, they're not just you know bisexual or whatever. Like these were men who identified as gay and now identify as either bisexual or as uh, I don't even know how they would, would identify now in some ways. But so I have talked to some of them who are you know claim a certain orientation that wasn't what they claimed when they were an undergrad. Um, but they all went through this conversion therapy program and there was both the one-on-one therapy, which is what I did. And then I also went to uh, the group therapy, but I only went to the group once and I'll explain both uh, in, you know, I'll give you the rundown. So group therapy or one-on-one therapy consisted of us meeting individually with this pastor. His name is Dane Emmerich. He has retired uh, this past year, but um, the question is whether or not this, you know, conversion therapy is still happening at Liberty. Um, and I think it is, and just a different, just with a different conversion therapist. Um, but we would go in and we would talk about our families for the first few weeks. We would talk about our relationship to our moms, to our dads, uh, to our siblings, to our friends. Um, so we had this very like pseudo Freudian understanding of mom and dad, and then a, a few questions beyond that about siblings and friends. Um, and he would ask us these questions because in conversion or in, in conversion therapy circles, what they argue is that it's at its core being gay or what they would call struggling with same sex attraction is not so much a sexuality issue as much as it is a gender issue. So they say that 
I, at a year early age, because I'm gay or because I'm quote unquote struggling with same sex attraction to use their language, um, I misaligned my gender identification so that I'm not, you know, aligning myself with the capital M masculine or the world of men. Instead, I aligned with, you know, with the world of women. And then at puberty, they say that you go for what's opposite of you. And so by, because I apparently was in the world of women, which, I mean, I did watch a lot of HGTV, don't get me wrong, but, <laughs> but they said, you know, because you're there and you at puberty, you, you go for what's opposite of you, you're attracted to men and that's it. So they say, if only we can realign your gender identity, your gender identification, uh, we can then uh, make you feel comfortable as a man and be a man, whatever the hell that means. Um, and then once you become comfortable as a man or a full man or a stereotypical man, more accurately, uh, they say that you can, your sexuality will change in turn. And so they pushed us to do, you know, quote unquote, manly activities like sports. And one, my, my conversion therapy manual, it was Alan Medinger's, Alan Medinger's uh, growth into manhood, resuming the journey was the name of the mm-hmm. text. Um, in there, they, they, they promoted carpentry. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you want me to do woodwork? Pardon me. Um, you know, uh, this, uh, very manly activity, very Jesus. Um, but that's what they, uh, promoted was doing things like, you know, that are stereotypically masculine. Um, one time I actually, I, I saw this website that said, you know, uh, you need to go read the sports section of the newspaper. And once you do that, although you might not like it at first, you'll then go to your buddies at church and you'll say, Hey, did you see that the Red Sox won? And then, you know, you'll talk about sports and then over time you'll realize how much fun it is to talk about sports. And then over time you'll know all about sports and that's, what's going to turn you straight. And it's like, uh, that doesn't seem all that appealing. Like I don't like sports uh, or watching sports. And so I'm not about to do that, but that's, you know, this is the sort of uh, advice that's given to you. Right. And so when we're in these meetings, you pray for us. We never prayed for ourselves, which of course is very telling that it was him interceding on our behalf, not us praying for ourselves. Um, he also was very tactile, like very physical. And looking back, uh, I think the reason why he was so touchy feely was because he was trying to model for us good touch, bad touch. Like this is how men touch each other. This is how men don't touch each other. And it was like hugging and like really big bear hugs. And it was just like really bizarre uh, physical interactions. And he would always pray with his hands on us, whether it be on our knee or on our shoulder or whatever. Mm. Um, Just very, very strange looking back. Um, But that was the individual therapy, the group therapy, the way I like to describe uh, group therapy, because again, all these guys are in there trying to affect a certain uh, masculinity. They're trying to approximate the discourse of what stereotypical men, you know, talk or how they talk. So we would go, so I went in and MRO was just like very much like there were these guys who were like, Hey man, what's up dude. And you're like, Oh, that sounds inauthentic. Like, don't like, here's the thing at the end of the day, if you're more feminine, cool. If you're more masculine, cool. Who gives two hoots, mm-hmm. but don't be something you're not, or don't try to be, should I say something you're not. And these guys, unfortunately, were trying to be that which they were not. And I described it in one of the articles I wrote one time as they were trying to, what did I say? They were trying to approximate the discourse from like a 1970s locker room porno. Like, it was just so cringy, right? Um, So that was group therapy where we were all piled into this room. We all sat um, and talked about, you know, our quote unquote struggle. Uh, We talked about the, uh, the, the text we were reading. We prayed. Uh, and we also discussed our victories, quote unquote, and our, our slip ups. And that happened in both individual and group therapy, where you would talk about things that you did that were 
uh, victories. So things that you, you bounced your eyes, you didn't look at porn, but instead went and hung out with a buddy. Those were like the victories. The, the slip ups would be things like, Oh, I kissed a guy or, Oh, I lusted. I, Oh, I masturbated like this kind of stuff. Right. And you'd have to recount it in a really like uncomfortable process. Um, but that was mostly in individual therapy, but also in group therapy as well. You know, you'd share just whatever, uh, the quote unquote spirit was telling you to share or leading you to share. Um, but yeah, that's a general overview of the conversion therapy program there. Um, needless to say, uh, very ineffective. Um, but, and of course I, here I am now a big old queer in Toronto, but, uh, yeah, that's, that was what I went through for four years. Um, and it was not good. Uh, it was certainly damaging to say the least. Well, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Um, there were so many cringy things when you just were discussing that of, of that, you know, um, and I'm, I'm a straight, you know, straight white male married to my wife and hearing this, I know so many friends of mine who are gay, who are queer and having to deal with this shit. And it, I mean, it literally from the bottom of my heart, it breaks my heart because one of the main reasons I left evangelical Christianity was literally their stance on homosexuality is they kept pushing it and pushing it. And all these evangelical schools that I went to from my undergrad and from my master's, it was always like, you could poke holes through their theology. You could poke holes through their hermeneutics and, but yet they still believe in that narrative. They still push that narrative. They still push that indoctrination. And I don't understand. I mean, I will say a lot of evangelical schools, at least from where I'm at, don't push conversion therapy. It's just kind of like, well, it's kind of like the military in some ways. Like, don't ask, don't tell. Like, if you're gay, cool, you're gay, but don't, you know, throw it out there for everyone to know. But I just... You're the second person that I've interviewed who went through gay conversion therapy and just the, not just the horror and the, the fakeness of people, like kind of like that bro language that you're saying, like, what's up, dude? What's up? You know, like pushing kind of just language and, and these, you know, what quote unquote masculinity is, um, is just, oh, I mean, I could, we could be here all day just talking about that, but Thank you on that tutorial uh, uh, of like the gay conversion therapy there. Um, and I, I guess I would say even too is gay conversion therapy doesn't work. Just doesn't. Um, there's a, I don't know if you saw the, the Netflix documentary that came out just a little bit ago. I forget what it was called. I watched it. Um, pray away. Huh? Pray away. Yeah. Pray away. Fantastic. And loved how they just showed like such a piece of shit. Exodus <clears throat> international is and was, I don't know if it's done or it's still kind of whatever. And how some of the early founders were, were like, yeah, we were always gay, but we got into this gay conversion therapy circus. And it's just fascinating to see, like, they were like, I knew I was gay since a kid and I've always been gay or I've always been bi or I've always been a lesbian and how they just never could live their authentic self because there was this narrative within their, idea of Christianity within their their evangelical churches or their jobs that controlled them, indoctrinated them, use whatever word, that they couldn't be like that. And then there was this one woman, I forget, and I loved how it showed her and her wife now getting married, but how she was a part of it for so long, 
And then she finally realized once she saw the negative effects it did to other people where she was like, I'm not living, you know, my true authentic self. I'm not living into my true identity. And I mean, I kid you not, I bawled. I bawled like a baby because I was like, why not just that what every, what people in the queer community go through, but like that plus what the church does, how churches do not think what they're doing is wrong. And that's what grieves me too. Like how in the world churches who claim to preach Jesus, which Jesus was all about inclusion and Jesus was all about love and how they therefore turn around and turn it to, uh, you know, unacceptance, exclusivism, you know, saying this is sin or doing whatever is just, uh, it's just hogwash. And I don't know. I don't know how schools, how evangelical schools function when they know that there's queer students in their school. Like the college that I went to, they, they knew that there was queer students. I knew queer students. I knew classmates who were bi. I knew classmates who were gay. And they almost made it feel, and I, I, it's cringy even saying this, but it almost, there was a, um, guy on my floor who was gay and, we ostracized him so much. And even at the time I did, and I feel terrible about it, but I was so indoctrinated from my church and growing up. And later on over the years, when I've, I, I came across him again, I apologized vehemently for how I acted, but it was almost just this, Oh, there's a gay guy on our floor. Oh, okay, cool. Well, as long as he doesn't hit on me or he doesn't do this or he doesn't do that. And all these years later, after I left evangelicalism, I just sat there mad at myself for how I acted as as a young adult, but then even more pissed off at the church for throwing this narrative and throwing this theology out that says queer people are less than or queer people aren't loved by God just the way they are. Um, and I tell people all the time, that was the first thing I deconstructed because I'm still christian or christian adjacent i would say um but that's the first thing i deconstructed because i was like i have too many friends and too many family members that are gay to say that you know anything like that is wrong or it just doesn't even compute you know in my head like there's no mental space in my head where if someone's like hey i'm gay you grew up in the church do you think it's wrong it's like, no, absolutely not. I have a very close friend now that I just became friends with, you know, about six months ago. And she's she's an atheist and a, a, and a lesbian. And she's like, well, do you have, are, are you okay that I'm a lesbian and I'm an atheist? I'm like, yeah, what, <laughs> why would, why would that be a thing? And she's like, oh, well, you're like the only Christian that I know who's okay with that. And it just kind of took me aback. And I was like, I'm sorry, not that I'm sorry that I'm a Christian, but I'm sorry that that many Christians in your life or that you know are that shitty to you. I know I'm a little bit on a rabbit trail on tangent. I'm sorry, but. No, but do you mind if I interject there? Go for it. I mean, even this idea that, like, or the, the question that she asked, like, is that okay? I think that speaks to how much difference within evangelicalism is feared, right? Mm. Anyone who's different, anyone who is other, um, is is scary. It's a threat to the homogeneity of evangelicalism. It's a threat to the legitimacy of the actual faith because within evangelicalism, they have this like disconfirming other where it's like, if you're right, then I'm wrong. And if I'm right, then you're wrong. 
And so it's this world of, again, binary oppositions. It's this world of, of, of us versus them. And it's a world that's allergic to the outside. It's allergic to anything that is not them because it's a threat to their order. Mm. And I think that that speaks to how incredibly, in, uh, what's the word, exclusive, uh, insular, mm-hmm. and, and, and what's the word? I guess maybe exclusive insular are the words I'm looking for here to describe evangelicalism. And I remember one time I took a class, it was on interreligious dialogue, so talking between different faiths. And I remember asked my supervisor, I said, you know, all of this is, is fine and well, whatever we were talking about. But I said, I just don't know how, because at this point I was post-evangelical. I was no longer an evangelical. But I said, how do we include evangelicals in the conversation? How do we offer them a seat at the table when we're talking about anything mm. when it comes to religion and interfaith dialogue? He said, Luke, you don't. You cannot. And I remember being so dissatisfied with that answer because I was like, no, we cannot abandon all these evangelicals. I know too many of them. I don't want them to all, you know... Uh, just do their own thing and, and live the, the miserable lives that they're living. Um, I said, I want them to have, you know, the ability to speak and communicate and dialogue. And he was like, Luke, that's wishful and idealistic thinking. These are folks who will not, and in some ways cannot, depending on, you know, where they are in the, in the system, um, have conversations across the aisle. They're not willing to do it. And in some cases, again, it's outside of the, fr- the, fr- uh, the frame of their possibilities where they can't, um, engage in these conversations because it 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 would um, presuppose that the other side, the people with whom they're speaking, might be accurate, might be right in what they're saying, and evangelicals will not accept that. And I think that it takes a really s- massive paradigm shift to move outside of that, right? Mm-hmm. So for you and for me and for others who have deconstructed, there's oftentimes that that one or two or three or maybe in some cases a lot of things that don't compute or are upsetting or, or frustrating, or we think to ourselves, hmm, I wish my theology didn't include that. And if we ever have a theology where you're like, hmm, I wish that weren't there, maybe it's time to get a better and new theology. Right? Like maybe that is like significant in, in saying that, you know, the theology that one has is bad. Um, and, that, you know, if we talked earlier before the interview about Kevin Garcia, like his, you know, or their, you know, uh, mantra, bad theology kills, right? Their mm-hmm. book, bad, bad, mm-hmm. theology, bad theology does kill. And bad theology, of course, has laid the way for so much homophobia within the church, right? And that if, in fact, the church didn't have these really twisted understandings of the scriptures, which I do think they're twisted, I don't think that they're all that um, historically or contextually informed, um, but if the church were to have, you know, better theology, there wouldn't be the room that has been made for homophobia. And I think about conversion therapy, which is oftentimes tied to evangelical or religiously conservative institutions. I think about conversion therapy as a concentrated form of, of cultural and religious homophobia, mm-hmm. right? It's just in one room in a very concentrated way. And I think that, you know, even hearing you talk about, talk, uh, talk about uh, queer kids at your school, I was also one of the people talking about queer kids at my school. Meanwhile, I was gay, right? <laughs> and it's like, I'm there talking about, oh, so-and-so, and oh, isn't that, you know, look at look at him, look at her, whatever. Um, and I look back and I still feel bad. I have a friend, Emily, wonderful gal. Um, she is so much, you know, smarter and nicer and literally everything <laughs> than me. I wish I were her. Um, but I remember at school, I saw her. She wasn't out. She wasn't, you know, even dating this gal. But she was always like really close to this other this other woman, and they would you know uh, be very you know walk holding hands or whatever. 
which could be, of course, read as just friends, but I saw them and I guess it was just my gaydar saying, oh, they're lesbians. And I remember I would stare at them and just look at them and be like, oh my gosh. And like, look and, and try my best with my eyes to make them feel uncomfortable. Mm. And looking back, thinking about that, like what in the actual hell was that? Right. right, right. And thinking about that, I feel so bad. And I said to Emily, I said, yo, I, I still feel awful about that. And she's like, Luke, I have no idea what you're talking about. But So it's kind of good in that sense that she doesn't remember. But nonetheless, how I, I regret how I, as a gay man, treated queer folks in the church. And so I think all that to say is that the church breeds this, this, the grounds or the room for, um, for, for homophobia. And it's, it's a place that finds a lot of fertile soil and does not find a lot of backlash or resistance, right? That this is the MO within the church is to be homophobic because homophobia is framed as loving queer folks, right? It's not that I hate you as an individual. I just hate the fact that you're queer. It's like, so you hate me, right? It's like saying to a woman, I don't hate you. I just don't like that you're a woman. <laughs> that person would say, but I'm a woman. Right. And then they'd say, no, I, I like you, not your woman hooks. You're not a woman. That, that doesn't make sense, right? In the same way for queer folks, you can't say I love you and, and say, you know, but I don't like that you're gay. It doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't work. It's that, All it's, that is, it's that thing where it's like, uh, I, 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 I love you, but I, what is that phrase? Love the sinner, hate the sinner. Yes, and I'm like, it's so bullshit because you're saying, I love you, but I really don't because you have this thing that I don't like in your life. And I'm like, that literally, I hate that phrase when I hear that. If I hear that and like someone preaching or sermon, I'm just like, nope, done. You don't get, you don't get it. You don't get the basis of what Jesus is about. And anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, kind of, I had a friend too in college where I knew, um, we're not as close anymore just cause, you know, with college, you move all different parts of the world. And I knew she was a lesbian. I had as a straight man, I think I had pretty good gaydar. <laughs> um, and I knew she was a lesbian and I knew she was a lesbian with her friend cause they were from the same hometown and whatever. And, but that, even back then, I wasn't like out as an ally and, and affirming, but I was just like, it's, it, I, I loved them for who they were. They were friends. We would go out and watch movies, go out to eat. And I, I remember having some, you know, other friends who weren't friends with me and these, um, gals. They were like, Oh, you know that, you know, whispering, you know that they're lesbians. And I'm like, and. And they were like, "Well, don't you care?" And I'm like, "No, they're they're good people. They're 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 cool people." And I look back on like my time in evangelicalism, and maybe just as for you, since we haven't really ever talked before this, and for other people who who are new listening, I was the kind of evangelical where I was raised in it, but it never really made sense for me. It never really fit. And all these years later, I look back and I'm like, "How did I believe in hell? How did I believe that?" being queer was wrong. How did I believe that I needed to take communion all just these things that started like collapsing. And I've always been a person, you know, where like my family's is always, even though they were very conservative growing up, but they were always like, Hey, if someone's getting picked on, if someone's being made fun of, if someone's not being accepted for who they are, then stand up for them, fight back for them. And I think, and, and I'm a verbal, I'm like you, I'm a verbal processor. Like if I go through things, I need to talk it out. Um, and I, I would do that in college. I would go up to friends and I, I remember going to a lot of my friends who are very, very conservative, who are still not allies. And I'm like, Hey, I'm, I, I'm an ally. 
And I said, I don't think it's wrong, a sin or anything to be, to be gay, you know, trans, bi, under the whole umbrella. And they were like, oh, well, you're going to lose a lot of friends. You're going to lose, you know, blah, blah, this. And I was like, I don't care because it's right. And my deconstruction started all the way back in college and I still am going through it, you know, a little bit. But it's it, going back and I guess to, to put a pin in it after this, I think what you said, Lucas hit it out of the park. It's, it's fear. It's fear. Evangelical Christians are desperately afraid of fear because fear that they're going to control the narrative, fear that once people like you or me or others start realizing like, hey, that theology doesn't make sense. And if I think that this is wrong, what else is wrong? What else doesn't make sense? And so it's like you kind of, it's like that Jenga piece. You take that right Jenga piece out and then it all starts collapsing. And I mean, that's what happened for me once I was like, hey, you know, I'm an ally for the queer community. And I pulled that out of my evangelical theology. And then I was like, well, hell, and then this, and then this, and then this. But I, th it's so, and I have so many friends and family actually who are still quite evangelical and a lot of them are great people but it's when you start talking even now about homosexuality you start talking about politics and and to be more progressive or or all these things then they get it's like you can honestly see them like like your person that you knew growing up like quivering like in the lips and you you see them start to sweat because they're so fearful that everything that they believe in, all of their theology, all of this stuff is is going to start crumbling down, and they don't want to do that. And I have actually had people tell me, Brian, uh, your theology, your outlook is probably more right. I just don't have the emotional or the spiritual capacity to go down that route. So they've even said, okay, you're probably right, but I'm not going to take the time to do it. Even though it might be spiritually beneficial, it might be emotionally and just beneficial in general, I don't have the capacity or the time to do it. And that's, uh, that's just sad. You know, it's just sad to me, um, how people, if they know something is toxic, if they know something is hurting their brothers and sisters, why they wouldn't take the, the, the hard road and do what's right. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that again, it, it goes back to the question, is that a theology worth having, right? Correct, if, you, if you're so scared of not only just entertaining questions, right? Like, and, and just thinking about ideas, like if ideas themselves are scary and threaten the legitimacy of your faith, then it sounds to me like your faith isn't one worth having. And I just think to myself, like, you know, this idea that oh, I, if I, if I am to question this, this might question this, 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 and this, it's like, yeah, maybe you should start pulling on that thread. Maybe you mm -hmm. should, should start unraveling because if in fact your faith is so worth having, and if you're in fact, your faith is so worthy in general, then you can deconstruct and then reconstruct. It's kind of like a little Lego set, right? Yep. yep. Take it apart, see how it works and put it back together. Again, most likely what's going to happen is that you're not going to come back to that faith. And that is probably indication enough that you shouldn't have that faith. Mm -hmm. But if, in fact, you really do hold fast to your beliefs, there is nothing wrong with exploring them, taking them apart, and then reassembling later. It might be in the exact same way. It might be in a new way and probably will be in an improved way. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, 
if in fact it's a faith worth having, you will have that faith later. It just might look a little bit different. Nonetheless, you should be interrogating, even if it's going to destroy your faith. That again is signal that you shouldn't probably be buying into the beliefs that you've bought into heretofore. Wow, that's that's really well said. Um, can't agree more. I want to pivot a little bit and ask about um, a podcast. I think you've been on a couple, but the one that we've where I hinted at earlier was the one about good old Jerry Falwell Jr., the Mr. Ass Hat himself. And hopefully he hears this. He, he never will. But um, what was the name of the podcast? I forget. I listened to it a number of months ago. Gangster Capitalism? No, the, no, the other one that, um, that those two women did where they talked. Oh, about, in God We Lust. In God We Lust. And where they kind of go over the whole debacle that's happening at Liberty. You were, and you were on one of those episodes, correct? Yeah, I was on the very last episode. I think it's called Survivors of Liberty. And how, I'm just curious, it's kind of cool that I got to hear you on that podcast and now you're on mine. That's cool how those things work. Um, how did how did you even get contacted to be on there? Was there like some open thing like, of, hey, did this happen with anybody? Or, or what? I'm just really curious about how that all went down. Yeah, so for that podcast and a number of podcasts like it, um, like Gangster Capitalism, if you had a chance, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, it's phenomenal. And there's actually a lawsuit that's a result of that podcast, Gangster mm-hmm. Capitalism, that um, it's uh, I can't I can't wait for liberty to be exposed as they've already been exposed through these podcasts, but even further through this lawsuit. But putting that aside, talking about in God we lust, um, in God we lust. So there are the two women who are the hosts. Um, but the majority of the research done for that are, is done by investigative journalists who mm-hmm. are behind the scenes. Um, and I don't know if I'm even, I don't know if I'm allowed to say her name, so I just won't, okay. but there's this wonderful journalist, uh, who's just phenomenal. Um, she reached, did she reach out to me or did I reach out to her? I don't know how I would have reached out to her without knowing who she was. So she must've reached out to me. Yeah. Um, she reached out to me and I think that she probably found out about me. I have an email chain, so I could go back and check it out, but uh, (laughs) I'll just pretend I'll just ad lib here. Um, so, uh, she probably found out about me because of the articles and podcasts I had done before that. Um, so I started, uh, uh, writing about Liberty in 2019. Um, the reason I actually first started writing about Liberty was because I wanted people to see on my CV, on my, my academic resume, I wanted people to see that I was different from them. I didn't want them to see Liberty and think, oh, he's just a Liberty type and he's mm-hmm. trying to you know, apply for this program or for this fellowship or for this position. So I wrote an article. It was uh, through Queerty, which is uh, a queer publication. And, uh, and then I wrote another one through RVA. And then I wrote another one through Religion Dispatch. I wrote all these articles um, and I started, you know, posting them, publishing them or publishing them and posting them and sharing them and whatnot. And we're started to get around and people, you know, started contacting me, including uh, there's an article by Ro- uh, through the Rolling Stone. Uh, I'm in there. There's a, there was a few like, uh, what's it called? Media outlets have like contacted me to, to speak or whatnot. Um, but I think that it must've been just, I guess, like the writing I've been doing uh, that they were able to find me. Uh, and then I, I got on the, I got on and the interview was actually like two hours, but of course, like the soundbite that they offered was, you know, quite small, mm. uh, a few minutes. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's neat that people are, are, are becoming aware of Liberty, uh, for those who aren't aware of it. Um, but also those who are aware of it, knowing that, you know, 
there are journalists out there, there are people out there who are doing their best to expose liberty for what it is because of how damaging and how uh, toxic the, the campus is. Well, yeah, and I would highly recommend, well, I'm going to obviously, after we're done recording this, um, go and download, gangs, what is it, Gangster Capitalism? Because I yeah. have a job where I can listen to podcasts for hours a day, which is nice. So anything to tear down toxic theology and toxic religious organizations, sign me up for. Um, and it's always weird when I say that because I'm like, I still love Jesus. I still love the teachings of Jesus, but I just hate the church as an institution, if that makes sense. Because um, mm-hmm. it's it's fucked over a lot of my friends and family, and I get really, really passionate about it. But what I loved about In God We Lust is just showing the hypocrisy, showing the toxicity, showing the indoctrination, any kind of negative word. I'm going to just say that that covers it um, about liberty and just about the just about the the lies that Falwell and his wife and all those in leadership there are about. So thank you for being on there. And I want we need to wrap up soon just because I think we're only being able to be on the Zoom thing for about around an hour and to be respectful of your time. But if you can talk about there's a class action lawsuit going on with Liberty, I think you had said um, that you're a part of, I don't know if you can, because of legal things, if you can talk about it at all or or not. So I'll just leave it there of say anything that you can say about that. Yeah. So uh, we, I'm a part of a class action lawsuit. There are currently, I don't know if the number is going to go up, but I know there are currently 40 plaintiffs. I'm one of them. Uh, who are suing the U.S. Department of Education. So we're not actually targeting any individual school, and we're very strategic about why we're doing that, which I'll explain in just a second. But we're suing the U.S. Department of Education because every year the U.S. Department of Education gives out not only millions but billions of dollars to religiously affiliated colleges and universities. And these religiously affiliated... That's not the reason why. The reason why is because these religious colleges and universities actively discriminate against LGBTQ students. So what we're saying... In the same way that you can't discriminate on the basis of race or sex, we're saying you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity or expression. Uh, We're saying that, you know, if in fact you want to discriminate, which we're not saying you should or any of these schools should, we're saying they shouldn't in fact, but we're saying if they want to do that, like if they want to have a conversion therapy program, if they want to uh, find students for for being gay or doing anything that, you know, uh, anything queer related or, you know, kick students out. If they want to do that, they can do that. I'm not saying they should, but they can, but they shouldn't be receiving federal funds uh, while, you know, actively discriminating against their queer students. So we're saying uh, either finance your own homophobia, uh, on your, or finance, pardon me, finance your homophobia on your own dime, or uh, act like other schools, which in 2021 uh, <laughs> are institutions that should be not discriminating against queer folks. So uh, the lawsuit, we're in the nascent stages. It's nothing too, too, uh, um, we've not gotten too, too far, um, but it is coming along. There are movements that I get behind the scenes stuff that I can't really say, uh, but I know there have been some developments as of recent. And so we're just, uh, in a lot of ways waiting, uh, for the, waiting for the trial to, to, uh, come to and to come to fruition. And so again, early stages, but we're, uh, yeah, we're suing these, uh, the, the U.S. Department of Education and not schools specifically because otherwise we'd have to go out each school individually. And so we're looking more so to, to, to go, out, go after the U.S. Department of Ed because it really cuts to the, the core or cuts to the, um, uh, how do we say, 
it's more effective because it's 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 a, it's um, threatening their ability to use federal funds. And a lot of these schools, just even though they're they're private, a lot of these schools do use federal funding. And so right. uh, it's a it's a smarter way, I think, of going about the lawsuit as opposed to suing the schools individually, um, because they have to comply if they want to continue receiving federal funds. All right. Thank you so much for. Um, it's unfortunate that that lawsuit even has to come up, but thank you for being one of, like you said, forty that is is trying to keep uh, the U.S. Department of Education um, accountable, and they shouldn't be giving any sort of not one red cent, not a, millions or billions of dollars to these organizations. Because I definitely know schools here that um, literally will legislate like, oh, we get tons of money from the government, but if you're a queer student, you can't come. So um, can we do a little bit of a lightning round? Because this is really heavy and deep. And just some fun questions. I know I didn't send them to you, but they're just kind of fun questions to break up some of this really intense stuff. <laughs> Are you Absolutely. game? Are you game? 100. What is your favorite drink? And I want to preface it by let's not say water because we all need water. But what is something that you are? It's like whether it could be certain kind of coffee, tea, cocktail, whatever. What's your favorite drink? Um. Oh, goodness. It's so bad. And I hate it in the sense. I don't hate the drink. I hate the fact that I like the drink. I'm, I feel... <laughs> like a four-year-old i love coca-cola so much i can't and i can't deny it what can i say i just love it and if if it weren't bad for me i'd be drinking it all the time but it's my treat now i, I try to uh, treat it as a treat but coca-cola if not uh maybe a second would be chocolate milk i love me some chocolate milk or a milkshake love a milkshake uh nice. apparently i'm a sugary sugary boy yeah, my my favorite drink is a Diet Pepsi. I used to love Coke, but I can't do it. But um, I shouldn't like Diet Pepsi as much as I do. But and then I like beer a little bit too much, probably more than I should. But it tastes so damn delicious. <laughs> um, how about what is either your favorite place you've ever vacationed or went on a trip, or a place that you've always dreamt about going and you hope to go there someday? So I'm definitely a city boy. I love to be in a big urban space. Uh, not to say I don't like the beach. I love beaches um, a lot. But favorite, I'd have to say my favorite cities uh, that I've visited have been Philly and DC. I love both of those spots a lot. Um, but if I'm thinking something like more f- like uh, vacation-y, oh goodness. I don't know. Oh, I love Montreal too, but that's another city. So it's not even like, okay, that's, yeah. fine. that's totally fine. And when I mean yeah. vacation, like I'm, I'm a city guy. I mean, you, you, Toronto's way huger than the twin cities, but I, I'm a city boy. I, my wife's from small rural part of South Dakota. And whenever I go back there, I'm like, I literally get the heebie jeebies. Cause I'm like, what do you guys do out here? I need people. I need buildings and things to do. Um, so yeah. And I've actually, I've always wanted to, go to Canada and I've, I've wanted to specifically go to Toronto just cause of, I love sports. I know uh, we, you're not a fan of sports, but I love sports. I've always wanted to go to like a blue Jays game or even see like the Raptors. Uh, cause I like basketball too, but then just all the, the history up there. I want to go to Montreal cause Montreal is just gorgeous. Um, I took French in high school and not don't remember a lot of it, but I remember my teacher who, 
um, lived up there for a while doing some of her master's work, and I've I've always thought it was really cool. So, hey, big cities. We're both big city people, so I really like that. Last last question: What is one book? If you could only recommend one book for someone to read, what would be that book? Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Um, I absolutely love Anna Green Gables. <laughs> I, I cannot, I remember what, reading the end of that book. Well, I won't, I won't say what happens, but I remember just like sobbing. Um, oh goodness. Anna Green Gables. If we're thinking about like what's politically effective right now, I would say maybe like Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. Oh gosh. Or, yes, so good. Margaret Atwood's like surfacing a really great text as well. I also love um, Alice Munro's Lives of Girls and Women. But if I'm going to say favorite book, and those are all Canadian authors, I'm realizing as I say that, I'm going to say uh, Anna Green Gables. Very good. Um, I will say I concur with Handmaid's Tale. And I love, I, I don't know if you've watched that show. My wife and I love that show. And I just love how Margaret Atwood, as a Canadian, has made America the villain. And Canada as like this bastion of the safe place. And I think it, cause I know a lot of people from Canada and I'm like, do people, and I always ask people from outside of America, I'm like, are Americans hated that much? <laughs> you know, like, are we hated, not all, us individual, but like, right. do people hate our government that bad? Do people hate our politics? I mean, I hate it. And people laugh at me all the time. They're like, you really critique America. Why? And I'm like, uh, because, because I can. I like the only reason I'm an American is because A, I was born here and my parents are from here. Other than that, like if I was born eight hours up the road into Canada, I would be Canadian just like you. I mean, it's anyway, I just love that. Um, in watching that show, how it's like, let's go to Toronto because Toronto's the big city, obviously. And they're like, that's where like the level headed and smart people are in this, this weird, kooky cult that took over the government which is gilead and i was like i'm always cheering i'm like go canada like i don't like america <laughs> so yes well you know what if you ever do read surfacing another one of her texts just phenomenal it's, i i think it's oh anyway i have a read but with in surfacing the most american characters in the text and it's very anti-american um it even compares america like uh uh essentially compares neoliberalism to to like a, a holocaust um but in that text, the most American characters are the Canadian characters. So it's Atwood's way of saying, hey, Canada, you're not as great as you think you are. Um, even though we want to think that we're better and you know, morally superior to the states, I think what she does in that other text is by showing the, the most American characters being Canadian uh, signals to us that it's something that spreads over the border. It's something that's not just contained within the states. It's something that's in Canada. And I... I would even argue that it's not necessarily, well, she argues that it's coming from America, like this disease, this Holocaust, this like plague or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's something that you find no matter where you are. If you're in a rural part of a country, you have oftentimes a greater tendency to be scared of people who are different. Um, and I think that it's not something that's just American, but it's something that's more transnational in a way, mm -hmm. but I digress. I digress. Um, let me just ask this totally unrelated to, our deeper conversation, but you're now a Canadian friend of mine. So thank you. <laughs> um, how I, in America, this show is absolutely huge. I'm sure it was huge in Canada. Um, but how popular up there is the show letter Kenny? 
Have you heard of Letter Kenny? <laughs> Kenny, yeah, of course. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I fucking love Letter Kenny because I love American shows that literally make fun of like small rural Amer- like American towns, and it sounds like the the guy who did the show, the two guys in the show who created it, is like this is what it's like growing up in rural Canada. And I don't know if Canadians get mad about that or if they're like, this show is awesome. No, unfortunately, this is so bad. Like when you hear about stereotypes about Canada, half the time, and I'd say not half the time, it's like the majority of the time, they're accurate. Like it's not just these like, oh, we're just like making fun of like, we're, we're not, they're not inventing some sort of stereotype. Like the stereotype that is like depicted of Canada and like even in the show Letter Kenny, right? You have like the hockey jocks, like mm, the, you know, you've got like the, the more... Uh, what's the, like a hick uh, sort of like a farm boy yeah. right you got like these very particular types and it's so unfortunate because it's so accurate <laughs> that's hilarious and I, i'm such a nerd that um they're going on tour like the cast and they're doing like almost like these bits and so they're coming to minneapolis in march and so me and my friends are like we gotta go i was like oh my gosh are you like all my friends are freaking out and i'm like do Canadians like this show as much as like Americans? And I, and maybe we like it because we're like, they need to make more shows in America making fun of Americans. Cause it's like what you just said. Like, unfortunately, those that that's like that. And it's so, it's fortunate, unfortunate, I guess, how Americans, when their shows like that about our small town Americans like that, it's like, yes, yes, they are. Those, yeah. those, those views about small town. Americans is true. So it's, it's interesting that you said that. So that's, that's interesting. Thank you for answering that. Um, thank you so much, Lucas, for this conversation. It's been, um, been a blast. Um, I hopefully we can cross paths again if you would ever want to be on and talk more about this. Um, it's just fascinating and a wealth of knowledge that you've not just given me, but to our listeners when this comes out. Yeah, I'd absolutely love to come back. Uh, you tell me when and where, and I will uh, be there. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um, and once again, thank you for um, all the stuff that you're doing with this class action lawsuit and just not just holding our U.S. Department of Education, but just, you know, on the podcasts that you're on and, and just saying how terrible conversion therapy and all that stuff is. Um, kudos, and thank you so much, and, and keep fighting that good fight. Will do. And if anyone is interested in, in following along with any of this kind of stuff, uh, I post a lot of stuff on Instagram and also on Twitter. So I can, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's uh, at Wilson underscore F W F as in Frederick. And then on Instagram, I'm Luke Slim at Luke Slim Dunk Wilson. All right, great. So please follow him and follow what he's doing. So Lucas, thanks again. And uh, um, have a great night. Thank you. You too. See you, Brian. Bye. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at SacredMN.